0: Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Jesse Barrett, author of Pigskin Nation, How the NFL Remade American Politics by University of Illinois Press. Jesse, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Jesse is a high school history teacher at University High School in San Francisco, and he earned a PhD in history at the University of California, Berkeley, and has worked as a rock critic, television columnist, and book reviewer. His articles and reviews have been published in The Washington Post, Politico, Mother Jones, The Village Voice, The New York Times Book Review, and the San Francisco Chronicles website, to name just a few. Jesse, go ahead and talk a little bit about your background, uh, personally, education, and uh, academically, I guess.
1: Thank you. I mean, I suppose part of this came from just, you know, I've been a sports fan probably my whole life, and, and I think the story for me actually starts really a long time ago when my dad got into grad school at the University of Michigan and we moved there when I was one and I left there when I was seven and at that point decided I would go to college in Michigan, go to football games and also go to college. Um, you know. And then I did. And so having not learned anything in the intervening 10 years, I guess I went to Michigan and majored in history and you know also went to football games. And actually part of it, I guess, is that freshman year I lived in the same dorm the football players lived in which, you know, at Michigan, all the dorms are, it was three wings, 15 floors. And they had, you know, you never saw them. They had their own rooms. They had a special dining room. They were never in any of my classes. So it was really clear how different being a football player was from being a regular college student. And yet I still remained a fan. And so through grad school, you know, I would always watch the games. And my college roommate is also a history professor. And we'd, you know, we'd talk, we'd call each other during football games and watch them. And at some point, I think I really wanted to write something, and I started just thinking about this weird disparity between being a sports fan and all the kind of political and social and cultural implications of sports, and the ways in which you never would see that mentioned on TV. And so in grad school, I didn't really do anything that was on this. I think it's definitely true that sports history is one of those fields where it certainly when I went out to grad school, which was in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, and, and I think from what I'm hearing now, it's, you know, it's hard to get a job still. It's one of those fields where people, you know, if you do intellectual history, that's, you know, you study philosophy. That's serious stuff. This, I think, is considered still to be, you know, somewhat frivolous by a lot of people who are in hiring. So, you know, when I was trying to get a, a job as a professor, I didn't study this. I studied, you know, something else that was cultural. And then, you know, eight or nine years ago, I thought I'd really like to write, try to see if I can write a book. That would be a good challenge to set myself. And I thought I wanted to find something that I was actually really interested in. And I was still a Michigan football fan, you know, even after knowing all these things about how bad football is for you and all the ways in which college football is, I think, really a dangerous institution on campuses. You know, you just think of all the things that players do to their, to fellow students, especially male players to female students. And yet, you know, I was still unquestionably a fan. I would, you know, every time Michigan's on, I'll watch the game. And so that's kind of where I started digging. And specifically, I guess, I was reading a book about the rivalry between Michigan and Ohio State during the years that Bo Schembechler and Woody Hayes coached against each other. And there was this anecdote in there about the Michigan kicker being late to practice because he'd been at a protest. And that kind of stuck with me as just the oddity of those two things. And, you know, you don't think about football in the 1960s happening at the same time. And of course they were. And if you do think about them, I think there's these kind of stereotypes, some of which are true about players being used to bust up protests, to kind of, you know, there's all these long hairs and football is maybe the all-time short-haired game. And so that story stuck with me and I wanted to kind of start digging and see if there was anything there. And really, what I found went in really different directions from that, I think. There's only a very small part of it that's about the kind of radical football players in the 60s, but that's sort of the genesis of it.
0: When did you wind up in California?
1: Um, well, I came out right after, so I graduated college in 1988, and I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I think I knew when I was 14 I wanted to go to grad school. Uh, my, my dad's a, my dad's retired now, but he's a professor. My uncle was at the Smithsonian Um, For years, and it's you know, it's a professor of the history of technology. Um, My other uncle was a doctor, and my aunt was a psychologist. So I came from that kind of family where, you know, my parents certainly didn't put any pressure on me. It was more I just knew. And so, in right after college, you know, as a senior, I decided I wanted to be someplace like Michigan that was a big public school, but with better weather. So I applied to UC Berkeley and got in. That was literally my entire. You know, none of these plans are really what I would think of as very clever or well-thought-out plans, ultimately. You know, I wanted to go to – you know, I'd been to San Francisco on a family trip the summer before I really liked it. And just literally the idea of not being cold anymore, I think after 22 years, you know, in New York and Michigan. And I thought, okay, so I'll go to Berkeley. So I went to Berkeley for grad school, finished grad school seven and a half years later, got the job I have now, and – yeah, I can
0: understand that. Um, what was that of curiosity? What was the uh, subject or the topic of your uh, dissertation?
1: Um, it was actually on ma- masculinity in the 50s. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm really a cultural historian, and I think that's, that's kind of how I approached football, was how does football fit into the larger culture? And so the earlier project I looked at, I mean, I read Mickey Spillane novels and Playboy and Liberace, you know, and kind of the social psych. Um, materials about you know there's there's this great thing I actually still give in my classes which is this masculinity femininity test from the fifties that's supposed to kind of test your ability to conform to gender norms and the students just think it's hilarious you know because they can tell there's all these questions that are you know do you want to be a big game hunter an interior decorator or something else you know so they know which ones are the the ones that kind of get you the the manliness points so I have little bits of it I use. But, yeah, this is really just a totally different thing. I think the thing that just connected them for me was the idea of thinking about football you know as a as a cultural institution you know as as i I think I wrote somewhere maybe you know in the in the intro that it had its own movie studio, it had its own lobbyists, it had a publishing arm, so that really was trying to be much more than just football on the field or football in the you know, in the business office, it was trying to make itself into a cultural institution that would have this presence more widely in American culture. And that's what really got fascinating to me was, and that's the first half of the book, you know, as you know, is, is looking at how the NFL sold itself in all these different ways that were, that I think that were much more interesting and good than they had to be. You know, I would say you watch some of those NFL films productions from the sixties and they're good. I mean, they're good, interesting, popular art. Oh yeah. And so that's, Sorry, no, I was going to say
0: oh, – we'll get to that in a moment. I was going to say your book covers what could really be called a a, pers- a perfect storm for the NFL from the you know mid-1960s into the early 1970s. Um, you got a commissioner with Marketing Savvy, NFL Films, which like you say, just um, brought it out there and romanticized a brutal sport and a politician in the in the person of Richard Nixon who figured out a way to politicize the sport.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good way to put it that there was – that there was this – Confluence of things because I don't think, I guess, in general, I don't believe in these kind of conspiracy theories in history, you know. And I don't believe that, you know, anyone, whether it was Nixon or Pete Rosell, was good enough or savvy enough to direct events in the direction he wanted. So I think the way you put it is perfect that there is these things all fit together in a way that the more we look at it from the distance of history, seems like an accident. And you think about where things are now, that now you have you know, players who are much more politically confident than, I think, and aware than players were 50 years ago. And I think able to speak their voices much more because of the union protections to a degree, obviously, because Colin Kaepernick has, you know, found out you can't, once you're out, you know, the union right now can't get you back in. But, you know, and a president who has politicized it in a very different way. So absolutely, I think one of the lessons is that this probably would have been hard for it to happen quite as well had it been at a different time.
0: Yeah, and you cover an era in American history that was just at the time was undergoing a huge cultural upheaval. Do you think uh, football was keeping up with the times?
1: Yeah, and I think, and I think, in ways that had never occurred to me when I started, that because I, you know, if you start with this disparity between the kicker at a protest, then the the story you, you know, the implicit story you're telling is that football in the '60s are opposites. But it's also the period in which pop art is blowing up, in which mass media and things like TV are blowing up. And particularly, as I was looking at it, you know, the Republican Party really seized on TV as a means of promoting itself. There are ways in which football is very much part of those things that are happening. It's part of use of the media to sell itself. It's part of these kind of publicity campaigns. It's literally, this is the part I think that just surprised me. And it was kind of the key to figuring out the structure of the book was I was reading all these political consultants at the time, and suddenly it hit me that they constantly would compare what they did to football. That they would, over and over again, these all these different guys in different walks of life, Republican, Democratic, Liberal, Conservative, would talk about their one-lost records, would say, what I'm doing is like a football game. And then you had politicians doing it too. Jesse, what
0: kind of impact did the NFL films have on the public's perception of the game?
1: Oh, I think it was basically seismic. I mean, you read all the... You read all the press coverage, for one, and and the reporters are just all over themselves. They say it's, you know, people literally started applauding when it premiered. And I think if you look at the tone of the media coverage in the late 50s, early 60s, as you see in the media coverage and in the newspaper coverage and in, let's say, something like the violent world of Sam Huff, the general take is football is extremely violent. And you have all those, you know, the, the images like the Frank Gifford one, when Chuck Bednarik has hit him and Gifford looks like he's dead. You have the one of Y.A. Tittle when he's kneeling there and bleeding. You know, these images that are of pain, fundamentally. And I think what NFL Films did was it aestheticized the whole thing. You, you know, one of the things it does really well is because of the – they have these soundtracks that kind of over – strategically overwhelm the sound of the game. So you see the kind of aesthetic experience of violence, but you don't hear it. And if you, I actually just showed the violent role of Sam Huff to some students this week. And they said, you know, what you see is football's painful and boring, which, you know, I think you get much better because he's just literally wearing a microphone while he's playing in a preseason game. Whereas in NFL, NFL films, it's so highly edited and produced that what you get is this highly mediated visual experience of football that is about this aesthetic of power and speed and grace and that the narration is constantly pushing you away from the costs of players i mean one of the things that says in this is pro football they call it pro football is there's occasionally a line that says you know wide receivers go over the middle with no care for the costs so every so often there's this kind of recognition of this is painful and people are going to get hurt. But in general, it's very much this kind of Hemingway esque framing of, you know, this is what men do. And of course, you know, the narrator, John Facenda and everybody can do their John Facenda imitation, but you know, that, that voice saying those things, right. I mean, that's, you know, this is, it's what you want to be. And, and I think the to me, the most powerful illustration of this <clears throat> is if you look at the lawsuit, the concussion lawsuit, it literally mentions NFL films and the players say, What this gave us was this vision that playing football was a badge of courage. So it seems to me that literally the players are saying, we watched NFL films, and it convinced us that in essence, what we were doing, although it may have hurt us personally, was great and heroic and awesome. So I think to me, that is kind of the smoking gun, so to speak, in the effect that the films had on everyone's comprehension of what it was to play football.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, and they call it pro football was was certainly a landmark piece of work. I mean, it starts with the ticking clock and the referee's whistle and then John Facende coming out like the voice of God. Yeah. Tug of war. Yeah. Tug of war, 22 nameless men grappling in the mud.
1: Yeah, exactly. And he's, you know, it's literally in the Library of Congress now in the National Film Registry. So it's, I mean, watching it, I just, you know, I have to say, because I grew up with NFL films and I remembered the, you know, the breath pluming out and the blare of the trumpets. But watching it, you know, for kind of scholarly purposes, I mean, it's good. It's really well done. It's beautifully made. The, you know, just the whole, yeah, the whole aesthetic, the, the way everything works together, the sound and the visuals and the narration.
0: Starts with a whistle and ends with a gun.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's, it's a kind of perfect little piece of, you know, popular art. And it's funny, in the editing process, I called this pop art. And I think, you know, one of the editors said, you know, that's maybe pushing it a little far. So I thought, okay, that's a fair point. You know, it's not, you know, it's not Roy Lichtenstein or or Klaus Oldenburg or Andy Warhol, you know, but for a kind of a piece of popular entertainment, it's really up. Absolutely. You know, it's still, it's still quotable. The visuals are still kind of astonishing. The viscerality of it, I think is amazing. And, you know, and, and I think having watched some of the more recent stuff when they have people mic'd up, I remember watching one with Ray Lewis. You know, in the kind of the middle linebacker is always this figure of ferocity. And I just remember thinking, you know, how? Because it shows him, you know, he basically destroys somebody. Then he runs over and destroys somebody else. And so it's actually too real, I think. You know, NFL Films, I think, was good at kind of holding that reality at a remove. So you didn't get the full force. You got what they wanted you to get of the force. Yeah,
0: those, picture, those film clips of Mike Singletary with his eyes going wide open as he's about to hit somebody. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go from films to politics. Share with us your uh, fascination with Richard Nixon and and particularly the Watergate era. What do you think makes him such a compelling figure?
1: So I've been yeah I've been fascinated with Nixon honestly forever. I, during when I was in high school, I had a whole collection of Watergate memoirs, and, and I honestly didn't know when I was writing this if Watergate was going to come up, and it just it kept did because Nixon kept bringing it up. Honestly, I think for me, you know, at this distance of I mean, I was, I was eight when he resigned. So I don't have a lot of memories of Nixon as a, as a president. And obviously I grew up in a family where my parents would never have voted for him. But I have to say at this distance, there's something a little bit endearing about Nixon. I think obviously in comparison to someone like Trump, Justin that Nixon graduated second in his class. He was a really devoted student of history. He served in the Navy during World War II. You know, he did all the things that you were supposed to do. He didn't take the easy way out in any of those ways. And looking at him, you know, you read about him, and Nixon is someone who should not have been president. He was not – he was an ordinary person in so many ways. You know, he was not charismatic. I remember I once – I did a lecture once uh, about a documentary on Nixon, and someone who had worked – you know, been a Nixon voter and had worked with him came up afterwards and told me the story that they had been at a reception for him in Marin County in the 70s. And Nixon came up to someone who'd been a backer, you know, was a Nixon supporter. And the best thing Nixon could think of to say to this person was, oh, I see you have pig eyes. And I thought, you know, the poor, I mean, the poor guy that I just think, you know, that's the kind of thing I could imagine myself saying and then hitting myself in the head afterward and thinking, you know, oh, my God, what did you just say? You know, and, and so I think, well, he was
0: sorry, you were going to say. I was going to say it was very socially awkward, so
1: yeah, so I think to me, you know, looking at the way Nixon dealt with football, he kind of dealt with it not as a celebrity. He dealt with it very much as a fan. And I think that's what's so amazing is that you know he'd he'd played in college. that was sort of the story, not very well. He never got a varsity letter. He never made it off the bench. And yet, he always said his coach, Chief Newman, had taught him more about life than any of his classes had. And so he had this very deep connection to the idea that. I think playing football was good, but also that he was just an ordinary person in that sense. He was a fan who was a really sincere fan. And you read these articles that, you know, even people who hated Nixon, you know, Hunter Thompson, famously, you know, he met with Nixon in 1968 when Nixon's running for president. And he said, Nixon knows football. I thought it was just going to be something they told him to talk to me about because obviously Hunter Thompson was kind of obsessed with football, too. He covered the Super Bowl a couple times and did it, the full fear and loathing treatment. But he was kind of shocked that Nixon really cared. And you read Robert Lipsight, the columnist, who said, you know, basically, I hated Nixon. And yet the only time I really saw him being authentic was when he was reminiscing about 1930s football. And so, you know, Nixon went to talk to the Pro Football Correspondents Association in 1959. And they were just in raptures. They said, you know, Nixon could have another career as a sportscaster. Some of them literally quoted him and said, I'm going to give my column to Richard Nixon. And so I think it was... When he started using it during Watergate, you know, there's this famous slogan on the wall of Creep, the committee to reelect the president, that was at the center of the scandal, that quoted this aphorism that people mistakenly blamed Vince Lombardi for, it, you know, the, and what it said was, "Winning in politics isn't everything; it's the only thing." So they added the "in politics" part. So you know, Nixon was constantly talking about, you know, he said, "The fourth. This is when the fourth quarter starts," and he said right at the end of it you know he kept bringing up you know he would learned from football to keep going to keep trying he built his so when he gives his his speech in 1968 when he's nominated he thanks Wallace Newman as one of the people who got him to where he is today so i think for nixon it was really really sincere and then this notion of you know people when they recovered the watergate hearings would kept bringing up football and saying is this what the sporting mentality has brought us to is this you know obediently following orders is literally there's a there's a piece by Timothy Leary writing in uh, Ramparts, the radical magazine, in which he says, you know, this is all at the feet of Vince Lombardi. The secret is out. Vince Lombardi's dead, but it's proof of what Lombardi has done to America is that this kind of unthinking obedience of orders is from football, and football brought us Watergate and, and Nixon. So I think you know he kept he kept bringing it up in all these ways that I think have to be sincere. Because if they were, I mean, obviously there were times when he tried to use it politically too, but I think fundamentally for him, it explained the world. Yeah. Dan Rather once wrote
0: that uh, Nixon, you know, constantly thought in sports metaphors and he made at least a loose connection between himself and athletes, you know, and he, you know, he sent in plays to George Allen and he called Don Shula in the middle of the night before Super Bowl six. And, you know, how do you think Nixon, um, did he kind of a safety net for him as, as a politician and as president
1: using these, these metaphors? I mean, so much of the coverage you read about Nixon is about literally even from the time. You know, there's something where the nation said something like he awakens something like, you know, the phrase is something like he awakens pain in anyone who has normal human feelings. So in that sense, I think the safety net idea makes a lot of sense in that it's something Nixon felt comfortable doing. And I think he was, as a politician, always in search of comfort. You know, he was always looking to connect with people. I have a piece I'm working on right now. That's about the Lincoln Memorial. It, it kind of didn't really make it into the book. You know, famously, he shows up at five in the morning after Kent State and there's kids there protesting and he tries to talk to them about politics, you know. And if you look at the coverage, Nixon talked about how he supported Neville Chamberlain in the thirties. And so, you know, he didn't realize that you have to stand up to evil. And so these kids should understand that that's what we're doing in Vietnam. And he tries that and he doesn't make headway. And the kids are kind of looking at him and they don't buy it. So Nixon then kind of starts to ramble and he talks to them, you know, kids from California, he talks about surfing, kids from Syracuse, he talks about the football team. And that's the story that went viral. The You know, that Nixon showed up at Lincoln Memorial and talked about football. And all the quotations from all the college kids are, this is surreal. You thought it was an actor, but no, it's Nixon. So I think it very much was his last ditch. You know, this isn't working my – Reason political arguments about the lessons of 1938 in Munich are not succeeding with these 21-year-olds. So I'll just try to connect to them.
0: Yeah, Nixon definitely saw himself as an underdog. And I think uh, either himself or his coach described him as he was so eager to, to do well that when he got put in the game, he jumped off sides on every play. So and-
1: Yeah, yeah. It's actually and I had a whole I mean, I wrote literally 50 pages on Nixon in the first draft. And, you know, and the ed- the editor said, you know, congratulations, this is a lot of book, now cut out a third of it. So a lot of that went. But yeah, if you look at the, you know, if you look at the first time Nixon becomes a national figure, there's a lot of talk about his football days. And, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, it's always pathological. You know, football is bad. Nixon is bad. Football explains Nixon. There's literally, a, you know, a line from a campaign chair who says, you know, it's this guy who never got off the bench for... For Whittier, and so that explains Nixon's complexes. There's a famous article that's a, you know by Bruce Majlis, a psychohistorian, who says Nixon's overcompensating. His entire life is a study in overcompensation for failure. And if you look at it in the 50s, the same story, the way people cover it is it's endearing. You know, Nixon's graduate second in his class, he's this champion debater, and he even played football. He wasn't great, but he tried hard. And so that same story about Nixon jumping off sides. Is you know is very much this look at how much he cared, and it's a good story. You know, twenty years later, it's literally you know there's there's one of these books that's called I think Nixon against Nixon, and the it's a psychologist who looks at a team photo and diagnoses Nixon's pathologies from his tension in the team photo, which is, shows his fear of failure. Wow.
0: You know it is good.
1: Yeah, so I think it's. It, oh, I was gonna say I think so. It's actually partly a study of how people overinterpreted things about him you know, that that in 1952, when it's, you know, here's, here's the California Republican who's on the ticket with Eisenhower. The stories are very much, and here's some enduring stories about him as a college student. And then in the 70s, you have these kind of crazy overreaches about, you know, we've decided Nixon is bad and crazy and territorial and scary. And so we're going to find evidence of this everywhere. It's crazy. You, you know, including in a 40 year old photo of the would you know College what surprised me
0: about what you wrote also and you mentioned George McGovern is McGovern saw the value of football and actively recruited players to pass on his
1: agenda as well was that did that surprise you oh absolutely i mean cuz i think you know the story you start with is there's football in the 60s and those things are opposites and yet you know you re, i mean you read about humphrey in 68 that humphrey I mean, my God, there was just, you know, they started in May and Humphrey's sending these prodding letters. When are we going to get the athlete endorsements out there? When's it coming? We have a whole plan. What's going on? I have this article that somebody wrote for me that's going to go in Sports Illustrated about sports. When's that getting published? Um, so, yeah, I think liberal politicians, you know, and, and there's this, this, I found this thing in a biography where, you know, one of the people who knew him said, oh, he played high, high school football. He absolutely wouldn't have wanted to play for University of Minnesota in the, in the 30s, but he was too small. So I was 100% not expecting to find these stories of, look at all these people who are football players who are supporting McGovern. And, you know, and then to to read also these stories where, you know, people like Dave Megacy had criticized football, and McGovern defends football from somebody like Dave Megacy, who's to his left, which just, you know, was shocking to me to read that. But, yeah, so, I mean, the Ray Shonky story is great. I just, you know, I finally was able to talk to Ray. And, you know, his story is just literally he was – You know, he'd been an academic All-American in college. He was political and played on the Cowboys where it was hard. That was not the team to be political on in the 60s. And so he decided to just hold his peace. And then he's on the Redskins in the early 70s and is just thinking about things and decides, you know, the war is bad. I want to go support someone who's against the war. And so he literally – he said he just walked over to McGovern's office without an appointment, knocked on the door. And five minutes later, they're having a conversation. And McGovern says, that sounds great. You know, go – go do it. And, and literally, they gave him no direction. I asked him, you know, did the campaign tell you what to say? And he said, no, they just said, you know, I think, and it's sort of the way the McGovern campaign worked was it was very grassroots. That was kind of its, you know, both its reality and its branding, I think. You know, it's run by Gary Hart in his first major political presence on the national stage. And so I think they very much wanted to advertise, you know, Nixon is slick. McGovern is just the people's candidate. So it was very in keeping that, you know, Ray Shonky would show up. And pitched them this idea, and they'd say, "That sounds good. Go do whatever you want." And so he literally sat down with a phone book, and you know, with like the players' directory, and called everybody in the NFL after practice over that summer. And a whole bunch of people, you know, apparently the Kansas City Chiefs were a really McGovernite team, which is just not a sentence I ever thought (laughs) I'd be saying. It's true, you know. And so, yeah, I think I think it is like it is just it's really interesting to me that there were ways in which. From this remove those things seem like opposites, and at the time they obviously didn't.
0: You know, in your book, you uh, you quote Eugene McCarthy saying that uh, with football and politics, you have to be smart enough to understand the game and dumb enough to think it's important. So that sort of characterizes them all. Yeah, McCarthy and Humphrey and McGovern and even Richard Nixon—they were all you know trying to get the football vote because it was Middle America. You know, the South and that quote traditional traditional values type voter.
1: Yeah. And I think what's, what's interesting is how the football expertise, how important that actually seemed, you know, the, the famous, I mean, the, the Arkansas, Texas game, I think is so interesting because so in 69, you know, Arkansas and Texas are going to play the NCAA took a guess before the season, which is amazing. You know, that they, they guessed before the season began that these would be the two best teams. And so to, Commemorate the hundredth anniversary. They would have this special game that they'd move from September to December, and so Nixon decides to go to the Arkansas game, Arkansas-Texas game. They're number one and two, and proclaim the winner national champion. And Penn State's also undefeated. And just reading through the files, there's tons of letters. I mean, literally thirty or forty angry letters from people saying, "You know, you're a great politician, but you don't know anything about football." Because why would you name? Penn's, you know, why would you name Texas the national championship when Penn State's undefeated? So it was actually funny to me that I think we have the stereotype that you just had to sort of say, you know, like football is good and all the voters would be like, oh, I'll vote for you. And it was actually, <clears throat> I think, much more complicated and involved, which I thought was fascinating, that when you read about these, you know, the people who endorsed McGovern, that especially McGovern and Humphrey, that the players had really thought about it, that they'd sat down and read his policy papers and said, you know, Ed Podolak of the Chiefs, said, you know, he really convinced me when I heard him talk about the small farmer, because that was my family. And so it was, I think the argument I made was that it was much more substantive than I would have expected. You kind of think, you know, oh, it's appearing with celebrities. It's just another kind of celebrity. And the celebrity says, vote for candidate X. I endorse this message because I am famous. And to read people like Ray Shanky who said, you know, I opposed the war. I had been thinking about politics and what the country should be doing. And McGovern really aligned with that. I thought it was fascinating to just think about how many of these players really had made a political commitment that was meaningful for them rather than just being, oh, a famous person wants me to appear. I don't know, you know, I don't really know what he stands for, but sure I will wave my arm at people and then I'll leave. I just I found that really, you know, and encouraging. I thought that's why I ended up making the argument that it was much more democratizing than we think, that you had people who had not been included in the political process who now were and we're taking this role in a way that they themselves hadn't expected to.
0: So going from the national level to more local politics, um, talk about Sam Huff and, and Jack Kemp. Kemp uh, these were two famous athletes that jumped into the political arena and you know Kemp was successful and Huff really wasn't. Um, why Why was that?
1: Um, and again, this is one of those things where I wrote 35 pages on those two and the editor said, that's great. We need five. So- so I cut out a lot, um, but I read a ton of West Virginia papers, especially on on Sam Huff. and And I think honestly, I think it was kind of luck more than anything, because if you look at the two campaigns just from the vantage of nineteen seventy, Jack Kemp's campaign is not notably more effective than Sam Huff's campaign. You know, a lot of it is celebrity football player sort of running a celebrity football player, but also trying to explain why he's not just celebrity football player. And there's literally, which I think I, I still stand in the book, quotes where people point out, you know, when Kemp couldn't connect, he resorted to football just like Nixon did. And so I think, you know, it's, it's in both cases, you have this kind of prototypical new politics that, you know, I have a whole chapter that talks about this rise of a new televised celebrity-ish politics that's much more about appearance And, you know, Sam Huff was famous. He'd been on the cover of Time Magazine. He was starred in the violent role of Sam Huff, which he would show on the campaign trail. And what's weirdly paradoxical, I think, is that that actually hurt him in West Virginia. Because people said things like, you know, he's pals around with the Kennedys. He doesn't know what it's like anymore. And as a West Virginia politician, I think, you know, then and now, you know, you very clearly have to run on understanding the struggle that people have and the struggle people face economically you know coal was already receding i think in the late 60s early 70s people were clearly trying to think of alternatives so you know and there's and i found in the kemp papers there's this great list of campaign recommendations where somebody says you know your voice is high and squeaky can you do something about that you look uncomfortable you're kind of too pretty we need to give you some gray hairs you know so they're both they're both kind of packaged i think kemp was packaged I mean, certainly Kemp had been thinking politically for much longer than Sam Huff had. You know, if you read his papers, he's been giving political speeches from the early 60s. And Herb Klein, who was Nixon's, you know, the kind of the newspaper editor who'd been a Nixon friend since the late 40s, really took Kemp under his wing in the early 60s when Kemp went to San Diego and he got him writing a column. And I read all of Kemp's columns for the San Diego Union in the early 60s. So he'd clearly been kind of thinking of himself as a political person in a way that Huff had not. But honestly, it felt like it was more the luck of the draw that the union endorsements in Huff's district went to his opponent. That you know, Huff had he'd been working for this textile firm that everybody hated. They were literally called, you know, this most unpopular firm in the country. And that Kemp had, you know, Kemp had good friends. Kemp had White House backing. If you look at his campaign literature, it's got pictures of him with famous football players and every famous Republican who was on the scene in 1970. So it's, it's funny to me that just that, you know, Kemp and, and the Democratic opposition sabotaged itself. The candidates kept competing. Somebody dropped out, came back in, only late endorsed his challenger. So he had, you know, again, to use your phrasing, kind of a perfect storm of opponents to set him up to get elected in a way that Huff didn't. But to me, the similarities are much more clear than the differences. And it was really luck that got Jack Kemp into Congress. And then they immediately gerrymandered it the next year. So they cut out all the kind of working class voters in his district. And so he would just have middle class voters. And he won these enormous majorities in every election from 72 to 88 after that. So clearly the party had his eye on him as being this charismatic figure. But I think he's getting there in the first place was very much – a bunch of things that fell into place in the spring, the summer, and fall of nineteen seventy
0: you know um presidents from Nixon to Obama tended to embrace their role as the nation's number one sports fan. And I think Ronald Reagan took it to another level where he had him come to the White House and they handed him the number one shirt and everything like that. And it seems to me that Donald Trump seems to be distancing himself from that. And do you think that's a mistake? Or has the culture shifted so much that athletes don't view a trip to the White House
1: as something special anymore because of the guy who's in the White House? I feel like so many of these questions, you have to untangle how much of it is Trump and how much of it is a cultural shift. Because I feel like athletes would be excited to go to the White House if Trump were not in the White House. I guess I still feel like that's true. I mean, it seems to me that what – and it's funny, when I was writing this, I actually really thought about um, Spiro Agnew, who to me is Trump's predecessor, you know, and that, in in, us that Agnew is, you know, Spiro from Baltimore. He's the, the loud talk radio, sports talk radio caller. And I think that's what Trump has done is that, you know, Obama would do his March Madness picks and, you know, shoot hoops. And it was, it, you know, and I think there's actually, somebody wrote a book about this, about Obama and basketball that I think is very good, which I haven't read. And I think, so Obama and and Nixon and Reagan were all, all cast themselves as fans. And I think Trump has cast himself as the kind of angry caller, you know, Donnie from Bayside or wherever in Queens he was from, you know, who calls in and rants about these players today, they're so ungrateful. I guess... So I have a kind of a chicken egg answer in that I don't know what things are going to be like when he's left the White House. And it's hard for me to predict that. I guess I would predict that when you have someone in there who is perceived as more congenial, players will again gladly visit the White House. So I don't know that he's permanently shifted the norms as much as he has changed things during the time that he is going to be the center of national attention. Going
0: into your um, research in this book, what was the most uh, challenging part about doing all your research?
1: (sighs) Hmm. Um, let me think for a second because it's a really good question. I think – I mean do you sort of – do you think of challenging in terms of what was hard Either to way. find or just it difficult both. to argue? Okay. So I think partly just sorting through the volume of coverage out there because I kind of had to think how many issues of Sports Illustrated am I going to read to see if there's an article that maybe says something about this, but it probably doesn't. So I'm going to be reading you know, season previews for 1970 and 1971 and 1972 and just reading about, you know, are the Falcons going to be any good this year and trying to kind of figure out at what point do I stop in terms of, in, you know, time invested versus reward. And so trying to kind of figure out where I could find – so when I found a preview of the 1970 college season, for instance, Dan Jenkins wrote it and it's full of all these things about the players are going to come out and they're going to kiss and hug each other and embrace and go under a peace sign and then smoke pot. I thought, okay, that's a really good you know, snapshot of the fears people would have about these kids ruining football. But the number of times I wanted to read through all that kind of just straightforward sports coverage to see how much of a political role it played, it felt like at some point I reached the point of diminishing returns fairly quickly, I think. So that was probably just the challenge in wanting to get enough coverage so I had a flavor of what was out there. You know, so because in terms of the databases I had, I could get the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post really easily. But you don't want to be just limited by that. And I, you know, given San Francisco, I could read the Chronicle too, which was a much more lefty paper at the time. So I think getting enough of a flavor of the national media that I could get an accurate sense of it, but also not spending so much time just reading coverage that I was going to be wasting months and months doing that. Um, I think you know, on the political level. It was trying to see, could I convincingly draw connections? Because, you know, so many books from this period would be, you know, you'd have the chapter that would be, here's a bunch of stuff Nixon said. Also, the Vietnam War was happening. Therefore, Nixon caused Vietnam. You know, and I thought, okay, that's, you know, it's true that Nixon said stuff. And you can find political rhetoric that sounds very martial. But I wanted to see if I could find actual connections of things where people were literally, you know... Political Football people were trying to play politics or Nixon or whoever, Humphrey McGovern, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, was literally trying to use football. And that, I think, was much harder to do to get past the initial, you know, the initial just similarities about how football is like war. And everybody knows the George Carlin monologue that talks about those two things. And, you know, baseball, the trick is to go home and football, you know, the field general marshals his army, you know, dodges the blitz and throws bombs. And so to move past that kind of, you know, yes, the language is the same to show actual connections, I think was the part I really wanted to push myself to try to be able to do and not just find, you know, 20 times when somebody used a football metaphor, the end. Mm -hmm. What did you learn that you didn't know before that really
0: fascinated you?
1: I think honestly, it was that connection. It was the number of times that people who are in politics, that politics themselves we're becoming more visual, more visible. The news is becoming so. You know, when you have Rune Arlich taking over ABC News, and I think literally bringing to it the storytelling innovations he'd honed on Monday Night Football, and thinking that literally the news is now being constructed, the Nightline, you know, when he, when he built Nightline, it was kind of explicitly on the model of, I'm going to cover world news the way I've been covering sports, which is attention to developing stories, on-the-spot reports, personalization of the story. So it's about a person rather than a kind of big abstraction. You know, and people at the time are horrified by this, you know, they discuss, you know, oh my God, there's, he's ruining news. And so to find that connection that, and it starts happening in the late sixties, when you have these political figures who are saying, you know, what I do is like playing football and then to see that you have people like Roger Ailes who's a political consultant in 1970 writing the White House and saying we'd love it if Nixon could go to these football games we really think it would help these candidates in these states so to feel like I could literally actually show connections there i thought was really fascinating and amazing and and satisfying that that it i was hoping it was there and i think it's one of those things that when you're writing you know you're never sure if you've just made this up you know and i have this I have this connection that I've thought is there. And so I'm just going to decide it's there. And I think, especially when you do cultural history, because you're always kind of saying, you know, here's a logic that links these things. And it may or may not be there. It may or may not be you making it up. So to feel that I was finding really definite connections in all these different areas was really exciting and satisfying for me.
0: Well, here's the part of the interview where I ask you what I've missed. Is there anything you'd like to add about the book that we haven't talked about yet?
1: I guess to me the whole the the third chapter I did about how the NFL cultivated patriotism, you know, and in some ways was also simultaneously socialist and deeply anti-unpatriotic. I just it was one of my favorite parts to write about was looking at how they got the merger through. I think it was such an amazing story. You know that here it is that the AFL is competing with the NFL and they're really driving themselves into bankruptcy because of the free market. And so they don't want there to be a free market. They want there to be one closed market where players can't pit the two leagues against each other. And so they decide they're going to merge, except it's a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. So they have to get Congress to license it. And then Emmanuel Seller, this Brooklyn congressman who's still mad about the Dodgers leaving, holds it up because he has this kind of working class district. And he thinks of the players as workers. And there's all these telegrams from players you know, to Hale Boggs, who was head of this other committee that it eventually went through, saying, please don't hold these hearings until we can talk. This merger is going to be terrible for us. And literally, there's, I I had never seen this mentioned anywhere before, that, you know, the, the merger was widely unpopular among the players who perceived what it was going to do to their salaries. You can certainly make an argument that long term, it was better for the financial health of the two leagues to merge. That was what Jack Kemp argued, that, you know, the merger ultimately is actually going to Protect our salaries, but there's an immediate drop in the wake of the merger. And just looking at the machinations there and seeing, I found a quote from Larry O'Brien, who was Johnson's kind of congressional wrangler, in an oral history at the Johnson Library, where he said it was amazing to me what senators would do to get a football
0: team. Oh, I'm sure. You know, um, there was a great quote that you had in the book, and I'm probably paraphrasing here by by Art Modell, who said they were basically you know dying the wool Republicans who were embracing socialism. And you can correct me on the quote, but I uh, thought that was fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's,
0: it's a
1: bunch of Republicans. Fat- yes, that's a great quote by him. Um. So I thought, yeah, the other thing I was going to say just really quickly is I was really interested in the kind of business carryover of this. So I went and I looked at the Harvard Business Review to see when they started using football teams and football players as these business models. And I thought it, for me it was fascinating because looking at the Lombardi story, to me the Lombardi story is not about politics. People thought Lombardi was a political figure, and I think he ultimately wasn't, you know, that his political meaning is complicated. People perceived him as a conservative, which clearly he was more on the conservative side than the liberal side, but he also said things that sounded much more liberal and much more open. He was apparently really, you know, he was, everything you read talks about how Lombardi supported integration. He had his team integrated. He supported gay players, which is kind of amazing at that juncture. And you know, but what made him so interesting, I think, was that he was seen as a salesman and that a bunch of former Packers made this film that was based on all the great things they learned that made them business successes from Vince Lombardi. And so to look at how that trickles into the business world, which I do in that chapter about coaching at the end, and how people started seeing coaches, and coaches started seeing themselves as salesmen. And people started writing articles about the less the leadership lessons of Bill Farcell's. And Tony Dungy has this whole business that's fundamentally about being a kind of successful Christian business leader. And it's, you know, the, the support for this is, well, Tony you won a Super Bowl. So to me, that kind of – that's something I've never really seen anyone trace. And I'm hoping I've done a decent job of tracing it. Looking at how, you know, Harvard Business Review decided that politi- the coaches are useful – tools for leadership. And they really started about 15 years ago. And they studied Bill Belichick. They studied Bill Carcells. They studied Bill Walsh. You know, all these different figures who seem to be useful, to have useful leadership skills and abilities. And now it just feels, I think, natural. If you go to the the business, if you go to the business section of the bookstore, there's 20 or 30 books by sports figures and coaches explaining how to lead. Right. They even had the, um, I
0: think Don Shula did the book with Ken Blanchard about success as well.
1: Yeah, it's just it's amazing how many of these there are now, and I I think that Lombardi was kind of the pioneer there of this idea that you know what coaching really is is just leadership in success in any field. And then his players translated that into you know Lombardi himself did it first. He's actually in a movie where you know it's about salesmanship, which you can still buy. I mean, it's you know the movie's fifty years old, but you can still buy it for two hundred and forty nine dollars the DVD that gives you Vince Lombardi's leadership secrets. Which I'm thinking the number of business books, you know, I'm sure Tom Peters, you know, those books are still selling 30 years later. But I don't think there's a lot of 50-year-old business books that people are still reading. So it's a tribute to Vince Lombardi, I think, or to what people think about Vince Lombardi, that 50 years on, you can still actually watch Vince Lombardi's DVD. Which, you know, to be honest, Vince Lombardi is not good. good. He's not a good performer. So it can't be for the quality of his video performance. So I think it's for this kind of enduring appeal of the idea of Vince Lombardi.
0: I think his players thought he was a good communicator in different ways.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, honestly, I mean, the other thing I was going to say is reading about Lombardi and George Allen is I was reading this book of oral histories after Lombardi died, and people really loved him. I mean, even people who thought he was a hypocrite, you know, Jerry Kramer in in his book, you know, writes about this, which again, I, you know, I'd, I'd read instant replay when I was a teenager, probably. And I reread it for this. It's still really compelling, you know, and I think there's something about Lombardi that just, he was larger than life in a way that people found really interesting in a way that they didn't find George Allen. Interesting. They found George Allen yeah. kind of, disturbing.
0: I think also Nixon, also.
1: you know, pale and sunken.
0: No, I said that's right. Nixon no, also saying. jumped on the uh, on the Packer image also when he when he went up there and, and talked about Bart Starr. You know, if you can't root for Bart Starr, you can't root for anybody type of thing.
1: And I thought what was interesting is I was reading this this piece from the the Ripon Society, which were these moderate Republicans, and you know their journal is online. And after the nineteen seventy election, they said that was a misstep. They thought Nixon went there and too overtly politicized football, and so that he shouldn't have because you know he shows up with kind of the entire cabinet and says, you know, there's nothing political here. And he's stumping for Republican candidates in Wisconsin with all these major Republican politicians. And it was just so overt that, you know, the Riphon Society thought he'd blown it. And he'd really gone too far into this attempt to make hay out of football.
0: What, uh, what kind of lessons does uh, your book, Pigskin Nation, teach the reader about where, you know, the marriage of football and politics have, has been and where it might be going?
1: I think I'm probably going to steal your point here about the perfect storm in that I think it really does suggest that in an unexpected way, politics was very – or football was very much a creature of the culture of the 60s and that the kind of – the placement of the NFL as a national pastime is now something that's 50 years old and like a lot of 50-year-old ideas, it's probably in need of revision. And I think obviously with the challenges that activist players and Trump's response to activist players – And the concussion crisis, you know, which, as we talked about NFL films, very adroitly, not just masked, but actually sold players on endangering themselves very effectively. I think it probably suggests that, you know, I think if the big question is, is football going to be more like baseball, which used to be the national pastime in, let's say, 1940, and is now popular, but not as popular? Or is it going to be more like boxing? You know, and that's something that's now far away from the kind of center of national consciousness. And I suppose my guess is given its political inroads and its cultural inroads that it's going to be more like baseball, that it'll be something that, you know, it'll be either basketball or soccer. I mean, soccer's time has been prophesied for 40 years, right? And there's there's actually a famous – there's a book by a, a Michigan – actually University of Michigan political scientist in which he says – Soccer really succeeds in countries where socialism is politically viable. And so because socialism has never really been politically viable in America in a mainstream sense, certainly not since, let's say, 1912, that, you know, soccer, therefore, will never become politically viable here, which would mean basketball is kind of, you know, the next national pastime. But I think that's my take, is that football will remain popular, but probably less so. And it will remain something that is in the cultural conversation because it's been so central. But that there's so many things that conspired to help it rise fifty years ago that are different now.
0: It's a good point. It's been a very interesting interview, and I know that your time is valuable. Um, what is your next project? I think you may have touched on it earlier, but um, what are you working on now?
1: um, um well i'm I'm thinking I, I mean, I like the idea of connecting these things. You know I, I to me, what's interesting about studying culture is the way you can link things like politics and sports in this way. So I'm thinking about something. I mean, I I grew up in New York. I grew up as a Mets fan. I literally remember the day they traded Tom Seaver. I felt like my world had ended. (laughs) You know, it was like, I didn't know they could do this. I literally remember walking into school with this, you know, literally it was this feeling of like betrayal. Like the Mets had traded Tom Seaver. So I have this idea about the 69 Mets and the notion of how There's all this talk about how they were this kind of spirit of the city and, you know, John Lindsay, the mayor, is in their locker room, I think, after the World Series. And I'm interested in seeing if that's actually true. If you go back and read the coverage starting in January. So trying to look at the whole, you know, the whole New York media, which is large, or, you know, some segment of it, but trying to tell that story chronologically. Because one of the things I learned this time is I got to start writing books. I got to stop writing books where my plan is, let me look at a bunch of stuff and figure out the connection. You know, that's that's just, it's always a challenge. And then, you know, your editor says stuff like, I don't know what the connection is here. You got way too much stuff. So if I can do something that has a definitive timeline, if I really look at the year from, you know, January 1969 through the spring of 1970, because literally something like five books on the Mets came out right after they won the World Series. And so looking at that story I'm trying to look at, you know, John Lindsay's papers and look at city council and see if there are politicians, again, who are saying something like, oh, look at this thing that's happening. We need to kind of glom on to this. You know, is this actually happening at the time or is that something people then say later about, you know, the Mets are the spirit of New York. They're the spirit of the city. So I like the time period. I kind of like the, the general theme with sort of a slightly different subject matter is what I'm thinking about next.
0: Well, we've been speaking with Jesse Barrett author of Pigskin Nation, How the NFL Remade American Politics. Jesse, thanks so much for being on the show today. We really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
0: You've been listening to New Books and Sports, the channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.